This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 24th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. It's more than just qualified immunity, though that's a big part of what author Joanna Schwartz describes in her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. The book describes the myriad ways law enforcement are protected from accountability and the difficulty regular people have seeking relief when their rights have been violated. We spoke earlier this month. We talk a lot about police misconduct on this program, and uh, most specifically, we talk about qualified immunity and the uh, kinds of behavior that qualified immunity uh, enables on not just law enforcement, but on uh, different kinds of public officials. What do you identify as sort of the kernel, the seed of you know what you talk about in your book, which is, uh, of course, shielded how the police became untouchable? Well, part of the goal of writing shielded was to make clear that there are many, many barriers to justice in the courts when people's constitutional rights have been violated. And qualified immunity is a critically important uh, one of those barriers. It's one that's received a great deal of attention publicly, uh, particularly since 2020. But part of what I want to make clear in Shielded is that qualified immunity is the tip of the iceberg, that there are protections that the Supreme Court and state and local governments have put into place at every stage of the litigation process that makes justice difficult to achieve. And then in the rare event that justice is achieved, makes it difficult for those cases actually to have a meaningful impact on the officers and the local governments involved. Well, can we walk through a an example case where uh, you know somebody who, let's say an innocent person was misidentified, which happens, and gets the hell beat out of him by police and uh, is in the hospital, uh, recovering from those injuries. Police realize at some point that they've, they had the wrong person and that this person was <laughs> beaten unnecessarily, to put it mildly. He wants to sue. He wants relief. He wants satisfaction. What are what are some of the hurdles that just leap out into your mind at at that point? Sure. Well, the the first thing is that this person is going to have to find a lawyer, and it might seem to listeners like that should be no challenge that there's lawyers, you know, filling courthouses and chasing ambulances all across the country. But as a reality, whether you think there's too many or too few lawyers around the country, there are not enough lawyers who have expertise in civil rights litigation, particularly outside of the large cities in the North. And so if this happens, not in New York City, but in Des Moines or in um, Salt Lake City, you know, uh, or or in a in a smaller jurisdiction, it can be very hard to find a lawyer willing to represent you. And and if a lawyer thinks about taking your case, they're going to want to know if you've ever been arrested before. They're going to want to know uh, if if there's anything about you that a jury or a judge might find unsympathetic. And if you have any any of those characteristics, it can be even di- more difficult to bring a case. 
part of this is the way in which the Supreme Court has limited the ability of lawyers in these cases to get fees, to get their their attorney's fees, um, which essentially means lawyers will get nothing if they lose and get a portion of any victory if they win. And there's a lot of lawyers who look at the challenges of bringing civil rights cases, qualified immunity and, and many other things, and decide they'd rather do slip and fall cases or medical malpractice cases. They're more reliable um, as a source of, of income. So you have to find a lawyer. Then once you have a lawyer, you have to plead a complaint, say what happened to you um, that violated your constitutional rights. And for the example that you've given, maybe that person knows what's happened uh, to them. They might not know the names of the officers, for example, though. They may not know uh, if it's someone who who died in police custody. Their family members may not know what happened to them? And I tell the story in the book of a of a woman named Vicki Timpa, whose son was killed in Dallas Police Department custody, didn't know how he died, didn't know the names of the officers involved. So filed a complaint with the Dallas Police Department, naming John Doe's as officers. And then the Dallas Police Department moved to dismiss that claim, even though they had body cameras. They knew what had happened to to her son, but because she didn't have that information at the very outset of the case, the Supreme Court's rules um, mean that her case could be dismissed uh, at that very outset. And so then if you get past that, you have to prove a constitutional violation. And the way in which the Supreme Court's interpreted the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable searches and seizures mean that officers can stop arrest, assault, even kill people who have done nothing wrong so long as the officer found it reasonable under the circumstances they were facing to use their power to stop, to search, to arrest, and to use force. And it's only after you get past all of those challenges that qualified immunity comes into play. If you can prove a constitutional violation, you can still an officer can still get qualified immunity if the plaintiff can't point to a prior court decision with nearly identical facts holding that conduct unconstitutional. So there's a whole bunch of barriers. There's It's equally difficult to prove a claim against a local government. You tend to have to show either an unlawful policy on the books, which is very rare when you're talking about police misconduct, or a pattern or practice of prior misconduct. And I show in the book with an example from Vallejo, California, one of the most uh, dysfunctional, violent police departments in the country that has largely escaped responsibility because you can't even show in these most dysfunctional departments that there is a pattern or practice of unconstitutional behavior. So I'm speaking to you just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, in 2020, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, was witness to a lot of the uh, protests and uh, outrage about uh, the death of Breonna Taylor. It's not just uh, police, it's courts. It's several steps in the process. And you've just laid out some of them, but what is the role that individual courts play when it comes to uh, people trying to assert uh, claims against individual or police officers or a, a department? Yeah, the judges themselves who are assigned these cases have a tremendous amount of power and also discretion in deciding these cases. And, you know, rules like 
qualified immunity and the Fourth Amendment's interpretation by the Supreme Court then get interpreted by these local uh, these local in individual trial courts. And I tell the story in a book in the book, I dedicate an entire chapter to judges and the ways in which um, a judge hearing a case that's called Tolan versus Cotton uh, can interpret the rules of constitution and qualified immunity, but also more discretionary things like whether a plaintiff is entitled to the discovery that they seek, whether they can uh, call experts to the stand um, at their trial, what questions are being going to be asked of jurors to decide whether they can sit. And all of those kinds of decisions, which are virtually unreviewable by, by appellate courts, can mean the difference between winning and losing or winning a lot and winning a very little amount um, in the in the course of litigation. One thing when we're talking about a guy getting beat up and uh, sitting in a hospital bed, one thing that uh, I was reminded of in the Breonna Taylor case, Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend, uh, fired a weapon, believing he was the victim of a home invasion. uh, And after the fact, he had charges hanging over him for weeks. Uh, And I think it's very clear that he he and uh, his girlfriend were the victims here. And uh, but then that seems like just yet another thing you have to climb out from under. Uh, if you look at the uh, the initial release from the death of George Floyd in uh, Minnesota, uh, that initial police report was medical incident. We con- confronted a gentleman. There was a medical incident, and he died. And if and if there had not been video of it, that would that might well have been the last word. It's it's absolutely true, and you're you're. You're raising two different, I think, really important points there. One is that often in these cases, and in many of the cases that I talk about in Shielded, people have charges. Not only do they have they had their rights violated by the police, but they've had criminal charges against them. Um, I tell the story in in the book of a woman named Jazel Matos, who was the police came to her house because her daughter called because her husband was uh, a threat to her. And when the officers came into the house arguing with her husband and she asked them to please go outside so they wouldn't wake her sleeping children, she was between the officers and her husband, an officer stepped forward, she put her hands in front of her breasts so that the officer wouldn't smash up against her. And then he tased her, the potential domestic violence victim. And then she was charged with obstruction of government operations. And and that is a story that you see time and time again of people not only suffering injustices, but then being criminally charged and having to deal with those criminal charges, sometimes for weeks or months or years, in addition to the harms that they suffered. And and the second point that you mentioned, which I think is extremely important, is thinking about how local governments and police departments specifically are reporting about these incidents. We uh, only know about what happened in George Floyd's case because of the bystander video. If that had not if that video had not been recorded, uh, this may have been yet another incident 
of uh, a, a case where uh, the, the the report simply says that that an, that a person died in custody, that they were resisting, and and we would have heard nothing more of it. And and this is part of the reason that I think the rise of of video and video cameras, but and also body camera video, has played an such an important role in the high profile cases that we hear and learn about. But you also have to know there are so many cases where there aren't, where there isn't video, where we don't know what's happened. And these incidents where we see what has happened, particularly in light of what's being publicly reported, should give us pause about accepting what police reports are in cases that don't have the benefit of that video. In cases where it has been made clear that a department has been engaging in pattern or practice of of violating people's rights. Of course, I, I apologize to listeners uh, again and again. Uh, I'm going to use the example of Louisville, Kentucky again. Uh, this was a report just released by the DOJ, but many other cities have had to deal with these kinds of uh, um, consent decrees and otherwise findings by the Department of Justice that there has been a broad um, consistent violation of rights of the people that are supposed to being uh, supposed to be served and protected by police. And, um, you know, does that really help? Does that really fix, uh, problems within departments? Does it encourage, does it align the incentives of, of police departments, of mayors, of local lawmakers to try to do better? I do think that when the Department of Justice comes in and does this kind of in-depth investigation with a report that's almost 100 pages long, detailing based on records and interviews uh, and investigations by the Department of Justice, it it is really a uh, document uh, and, and damnation of current practices in Louisville that has to be contended with by politicians uh, and the department. And of course, the Department of Justice also has the power to sue um, and to get a consent decree against departments if they are not willing uh, to make the kinds of changes that they need to that have been identified. Uh, I do think that the Department of Justice's investigations have been important have moved the needle in cities across the country. I don't think that that Department of Justice investigations or any other change uh, that you can identify is a um, golden ticket and is going to automatically uh, turn us into uh, you know a, a perfect system. But I do think that these move the needle. The, the unfortunate thing is that the Department of Justice is as big as the Department of Justice is. The division that investigates uh, civil rights violations by law enforcement um, is fewer than 20 lawyers, uh, even in its most robust um, enforcement periods uh, under Obama and and then Biden. And a group of 20 attorneys can't possibly investigate the goings on in 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. It's high profile events like Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd and on and on that uh, that then can prompt these investigations to occur. But it's it can't be a solution uh, to deal with police 
misconduct and systemic failures in departments across the country. They just simply don't have the resources. I spoke recently with the governor of New Hampshire, uh, Chris Sununu, and uh, qualified immunity was one of the topics we discussed. And he expressed concern on behalf of police that uh, he's worried about, one, the difficulty in recruiting officers, that uh, people will flee the state if uh, qualified immunity were to go away, and also just the interactions that police must engage in in order to uh, deal with people, the suspects that they believe have committed crimes. They have to touch them. They have to put them into cars. They have to handcuff them, uh, that sort of thing. And so his, one of his concerns raised was, well, look, I'm very concerned about uh, a flood of lawyers who would race in to uh, not be ambulance chasers, but squad car chasers to try to deal with uh, these cases. And uh, I, I was just reminded, reminded of what you had said earlier, which was um, finding lawyers able to take these cases is actually quite difficult. It is. And, and you know, I have spent my legal career, my academic career, really the past 15 years studying the claims made about qualified immunity and other protections by the Supreme Court and by commentators. I have been testifying in state legislatures across the country, speaking with Congress people as they were considered the considering the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And and what I would say to the governor um, in New Hampshire and to people across the country uh, is to read my book because. Uh, those claims about the horrors that would befall society as a whole if qualified immunity were done away with really bear no relationship to reality. There's there's a concern that officers are going to be bankrupted without qualified immunity's protections. And as I have shown in prior research, as I describe in the book, states and local governments across the country have a protection for officers' bank accounts that has nothing to do with qualified immunity. They're called indemnification agreements. Uh, They're part of statutes and policies across the country, and they provide that when officers are sued, they will be provided with a lawyer and settlements and judgments will be paid by the local government, not the individual officer. And when I looked across the country at 81 jurisdictions over a six-year period, I found that 99.98% of the dollars paid to plaintiffs over that six-year period in those 81 jurisdictions came from insurance companies and local governments. It was 0.02% of the dollars paid by officers in two of the 81 jurisdictions. The infrequent times that they paid, they paid an average of $4,000, which is not the makings of a bankruptcy uh, filing, and that these protections have nothing to do with qualified immunity. As far as the the need to vigorously enforce the law, there's a whole other set of protections for that, which is the way in which the Supreme Court's interpreted the Fourth Amendment, which allow officers to make mistakes, to make mistakes in the course of their job, to arrest the wrong person, to shoot the wrong person, to assault the wrong person, and to not be do not have violated the Constitution so long as they've made a reasonable mistake. So you look at those two protections together and qualified immunity is not protecting officers' bank accounts against uh, reasonable mistakes made in a split second. Indemnification statutes are and the Fourth Amendment is. And 
I do understand and I appreciate the idea that there is currently a difficulty in retaining officers, recruiting and retaining officers. I would say that that some of that is because of the lack, the crisis of, of confidence that we have as a society right now in law enforcement and the criticisms of law enforcement, in part because of doctrines like qualified immunity that send the message that police can shoot first and think later, as Justice Sotomayor said. And, and it's those, it's that public perception, not the protections of qualified immunity that are creating these problems. And in fact, I think reforms of qualified immunity might heal some of those divisions. If there are officers out there who say, or law enforcement officials, police union officials who say that potential changes to qualified immunity are what is going to make them leave their job, I would say that it is the rhetoric of qualified immunity, the rhetoric that officers are going to be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes without qualified immunity's protections that might be scaring people away. But it is not about the realities of qualified immunity and how it functions on the ground. Two states and New York City have gotten rid of qualified immunity for police officers. New Mexico went further, made it for, uh, I believe, all public officials or almost all public officials. Um, what will you be looking at in those states when police are acting under color of state law uh, and engaging in egregious misconduct, that is to say, not mistakes. What are you going to be looking for in the data to say, this is working, this is not working? Well, I definitely think that um, figuring out what is happening in Colorado and New Mexico and New York City uh, is key to the future of qualified immunity in our country, or at least it should be if people are responding to data <laughs> um, as instead of, instead of, myths and and fear-mongering. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly what's happening in Colorado and New Mexico and New York City, um, in part because these are state laws that allow people to sue under the state constitution without qualified immunity as a defense. And there's simply uh, worse data available about what happens in state courts versus federal courts. But it is certainly something that I'm looking into. And among things I'd like to see are um, what the filing rates are in these cases, what the payouts are in police misconduct cases in general, um, and certainly uh, information about um, hiring and recruitment and retention, um, information about public uh, perceptions of law enforcement. Um, I will tell you anecdotally, there has been no evidence that anyone has been able to point to of frivolous cases or cases of any kind flooding the courthouses in Colorado state court, New Mexico state um, court, or in New York City with these claims. There's been no evidence of massive influxes in uh, or increases in payouts in these cases. And as one anecdotal data point, um, the Colorado statute was passed in June of 2020. I think a year later, it was uh, it was expanded to also apply to Colorado state police. Originally, it had just been local police, and it was amended to apply to state police without objection by California. I mean, Colorado state police or their union representatives. And you would think that if the Colorado statute 
created the kind of crises that the governor in New Hampshire expects, that there would have been some opposition to the expansion of Colorado's law. There was none. You mentioned payouts. And of course, in the cases of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, it, you know, you add those two together and it's tens of millions of dollars um, that cities then cannot use for purposes that they might otherwise like to. Um, how does that affect policing? And you know what what should be the message received by local public officials about uh, you know how police do their jobs and how how much oversight departments receive? You know what should what should they be hearing when they write these big checks? So there are these big cases with these big checks that we hear about, and I think that. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's cases and and killings both inspired um, a great deal of changes in policies, not only in the cities where they occurred, but across the country, ending no-knock warrants, ending the kind of chokeholds or or prone position um, uh, force that was used in George Floyd's case. But in many cases that don't receive that kind of public attention, the money is paid out with very little uh, consequences for the police department, either financially or, or, or in terms of other kinds of political consequences. And the payouts are large. If you, if you read stories about payouts in Baltimore or Chicago or New York or, or other places, important to remember, though, that these payouts are almost always less than 1% of local government's budgets as a whole. And you can compare that to a quarter to a third of local government's budgets being spent on police departments themselves. Um, it's also important to note that this money doesn't come out of the police department's budgets, or I should say doesn't have a financial effect on the police department. I talk in, in Shielded about Chicago, where the money paid to uh, satisfy settlements and judgments in police misconduct cases technically comes from the police department's budget. Uh, but when she, when the Chicago Police Department runs out of money, which they do virtually every year uh, to from their litigation fund, the remainder comes from the local, the central budget. And it ends up coming from crevices of the budget that are earmarked to help the most vulnerable. I heard from a lawyer who used to represent the city of Chicago who said when there were large payouts in Chicago, that meant less lead paint testing for kids. And, and I don't think that is the way that, that it should be uh, when the most vulnerable, in fact, the people who are disproportionately likely to be uh, assaulted and falsely arrested by the police are then the ones who are not getting their homes paid, uh, tested for environmental hazards. This is not the way it should work. In my view, the money should come out of police department budgets. Again, it would only be a small percentage of that department's budget, but it makes sense to me that there should be a financial incentive to departments to reduce the costs of litigation. And if the costs are high, that they may have to cut back on other costs. This is how we run households. This is how we run um, local governments. And, and there should be these consequences. And in fact, I've spoken to a few risk managers in, in jurisdictions where this is the case, and they say, this makes sense. We It's important for us to know where the money is going, where it's coming from, and what we can do to prevent these things from happening again in the future, as opposed to playing with house money. 
I hear complaints mostly on the left that uh, it's it's sort of a hand gesture and well, this is all racism. That it it it, it appear it sounds to me like reductio to racism. QED. Look, I think it's important to take note of the fact that policing in our country, particularly in the South and the Southwest, has racist roots. It, it They emerged from slave patrols in the South. In the Southwest, the, the Texas Rangers were killing Mexicans and Mexican-Americans and indigenous people as much as the Ku Klux Klan was killing Black people in the South. And today, it's also important to recognize that Black people, Latino people, indigenous people are disproportionately stopped, arrested, assaulted, and killed by the police. Those are the, those are the realities of our history and our present day. But I also think it's really important to recognize that lots of white people are killed and assaulted uh, by the police as well. And in fact, in Shielded, I make a point of telling the stories of people who span multiple uh, different dimensions and um, categories, uh, not just people who are Black and white and Latino and indigenous, but also people who are rich, who are poor, who are executives, who have, you know, who, who are ho homeless, people who have mental health crises, people who've never been in trouble with the law. And to my mind, it's really important to recognize the problems and the violence of policing and the lack of accountability as a problem that can affect us all. We all have a stake in this problem and we all have should have a commitment to its solution. What's the role of unions in all this? Unions play a huge role in barriers to accountability. Certainly in the current debate, unions have union officials have played a strong role in state and federal opposition to qualified immunity reform but most of their work and their most effective work has been preventing police departments and local governments from taking action against their officers through the creation of law enforcement officers bills of rights through the creation of arbitration protections uh, for officers once they've been found to have engaged in misconduct. And union officials have have used their power and and concerns these same sort of myths and fears about the dangers of too much justice um, in these in these investigations to prevent meaningful internal affairs investigations and discipline. And that they have been so powerful in that role that I really, they're part of the reason that I think that civil rights suits are often the best and only way of holding officers accountable because union officials have been so successful in cutting off uh, the barriers, cutting off the, the means of internal affairs, investigations and discipline and firing. What gives you the most hope that reform is possible and that we can have a you know coherent system where police are able to address real threats? Uh, that face people, uh, arrest criminals, real criminals, and uh, yet not engage in the kind of misconduct that has been highlighted uh, so much over the last few years? I think that there are important shifts that are happening. They are happening most in local governments across our country. Uh, certainly, there is movement in state legislatures like Colorado. 
But there's also efforts that are being undertaken by local governments across the country. Philadelphia, for example, has uh, limited the ability of police to engage in traffic stops um, because those stops so often lead to uh, the kind of violence that that we're talking about. Memphis uh, is also considering that kind of statute. Memphis also um, has begun uh, to rethink or cause us all to rethink um, the use of these so-called elite units like the Scorpion unit that killed Tyree Nichols. So I think that there is movement. I think that if you look at the public response and the government response to the killing of Tyree Nichols, you can see uh, much swifter action than you would have seen 10 years ago, for example, in releasing video, in prosecuting officers and firing officers. But we still have a tremendous way to go. And and these changes that are happening locally are only happening in local governments uh, that are willing to make them. There's There's really very little that's happening at the federal level, very little happening uh, by the Supreme Court or or by Congress. And so we are left to these changes that are happening in the states and the hope that as there are these changes, that adjustments, improvements in places like Philadelphia and in Colorado and in Memphis can then be replicated elsewhere. But it's going to take a lot of work, um, a lot of advocacy, um, continued advocacy, uh, by folks who uh, want to to change the way policing works around our country. Joanna Schwartz is author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. We spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 